Uh, Last week, uh, we started something brand new. Uh, We are in the midst of our second week uh, in our series uh, in Hebrews, a letter to to the Hebrews. And uh, last week, I I shared two things. I'm going to share this very quickly, uh, just in case you weren't here. Um, I I asked the question, why? And I asked the question, what? Uh, Two pretty important questions when you kick off something new. Why are you doing it? And what are you hoping uh, that would actually be accomplished? Uh, There's lots of books in the Bible, 66 uh, to be exact. So out of all the books in the Bible, why did we do Hebrews? Uh, and the reason, I wrote it down like this, is the reason why is to know Jesus rightly, uh, so that you and I would know Jesus rightly. Because as you're going to see last week, you're going to see this week, and in the coming weeks, Hebrews is about Jesus. It is about helping us to understand who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is doing. So the heart behind Hebrews is that we would know Jesus rightly, so that our lives would reflect would reflect the truth about who Jesus is and what he's like and just the awesomeness of, of who Jesus is. Now, I shared this last week, but anytime you're getting challenged to, to learn rightly something, uh, it presupposes that there might be some things that you're going to have to unlearn along the way. Now, obviously, we all have different paths, different stories, different journeys. Uh, and one of the things as we're going to start tracking through Hebrews uh, is I encourage and challenge, let's be teachable. Uh, as we walk through uh, the letter uh, to the Hebrews, uh, let's be really teachable and say, if this is who Jesus is and this is what it looks like to rightly believe, well, there might be some things that we have to unlearn so that we can learn rightly uh, who he is. And I shared last week, one of the things that I have to continually unlearn, but it was a major obstacle for me, uh, was this idea of uh, performance-driven faith. Uh, somewhere along the line, I learned, uh, I picked up this idea that if, if I did this and I did this, it would equal God loving me, God blessing me, God having favor shine down upon me. And so I really related with God primarily through formulas. Uh, and I had to unlearn God is not a formulaic God. Uh, God is not a God who wants us to relate with him through formulas that we make. He wants us to relate with him through relationship. And so the why of why we're doing Hebrews is so that we would learn rightly who Jesus is, and that would reflect in everything we do in our life. Every relationship would reflect uh, who Jesus is. Every job we have, every parenting, every spa- everything that we do in life would reflect the reality of who he is. Uh, that's the why. Uh, the question of what, what uh, are we hoping to accomplish in uh, the letter of Hebrews was really simple, and I just encourage you to write it down like this, that Jesus is greater than everything. That we would not just say that as a great spiritual catchphrase, but we would be convinced. Uh, we would be absolutely convinced that no matter how good good is or how bad bad is, we would be utterly convinced that Jesus is greater than all of that and everything in between. Uh, and that because we're convinced that Jesus is greater than everything, you and I would have stories. We would be able to tell stories uh, to those that are around us of this Jesus who is greater than everything, what Jesus is doing, and so that other people in our lives who might not know who he is would come to realize, wow, he is so much greater than what I have been giving myself to. So that was the what, uh, the why, and the what. And if you remember uh, from last week, and if you don't, that's okay, kind of the big idea of chapter one of Hebrews was simply this, God has spoken, uh, and God is continually speaking uh, most profoundly through the person of Jesus. And because Jesus is greater than everything, whatever Jesus is telling us to do is, is the best thing we could be doing. 
Uh, And that's where we left off last week is whatever Jesus is telling you, because God has spoken and he's speaking to us through Jesus and Jesus is greater, whatever he is telling us is the greatest thing that we could be doing. And so as we start with chapter two, uh, it starts very interestingly and there's a warning. Uh, The author of Hebrews gives us a warning and this is the the first of four more warning uh, passages uh, that is going to happen in Hebrews. Uh, But when I was praying and thinking through and planning and studying and reading and praying some more, I really couldn't get unstuck from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, and it just simply says this, so we must listen very carefully to the truth uh, we have heard, or we may drift away from it. Let me read it again. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. The imagery used is very powerful, very potent. That uh, in that of a person who is slowly drifting further and further and further and further away from the truth. Um, uh, I'm going to ask a few different questions, but really the question that I'm asking today, and uh, I'm going to look at Hebrews 2 to answer this question, uh, is, is this. How do you know that you won't drift away from faith, from truth in Christ as you get older? How do you know that you won't drift away from faith in Christ as you get older. Uh, It's safe to say that no one starts a relationship with God and says, you know what, I'm going to start really strong. I'm going to start with a lot of passion, a lot of joy, a lot of uh, excitement. And I really hope in years I just drift away from that. Like no one ever starts their journey hoping that they drift farther and farther and farther away from where they first begun. Sticking with this, I, this nautical theme, no one ever would get into a boat with a plan to drift as far off course as you possibly could. Why? Well, because it's just foolish and it would be dangerous uh, just to drift and drift and drift. So the question before us is, how do you know that you won't drift away from faith in Christ as you get older? How do you even answer that question? Because to say that this would never happen to you would not only be arrogant, but you'd be standing in a really long line of people who said the same thing only to have drifted away. So if Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 starts with a a pretty strong warning of holding on to the truth, listening, hearing the truth, that we might not drift away How do you know that you will not drift away? Uh, Two years ago, uh, think back to two years. Uh, Are you today where you'd hope to be two years ago? And I don't mean like circumstantially or geographically or career or relationally. I'm asking the question, are you today where you'd hope to be two years ago? Meaning, has your love for Christ, your service for Christ, your devotion to Christ, your modeling of Christ, is it where you wanted it to be two years ago? Heck, even just ask a year ago. Um, Now, I'm going to realize that some of us would be like, yeah, I've actually grown in my love. I've actually grown in my knowledge, understanding, and awareness of who Christ is, and, and it's reflected in my life. So I realize that some of us would say that, and I'm I'm thankful for that, but how many of us would have to admit that just in the past year or over in the past two years, there's just been a lot of floating. Uh, There's just been a lot of drifting. Uh, There's been a lot of just kind of going through the motions. Um, 
And you might look good on the outside because you're doing maybe the right things and you come to church and you're doing some of these outward things, but inwardly, you know that you've drifted. Somehow, you've began to float. And again, no one ever starts out saying, I hope I drift away. But if you're honest, you could say, well, I've been drifting. I've been drifting for a really long time. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, said it well. Uh, If you examined 100 people uh, who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Now, clearly, there's people. uh, There's a good friend in my life who was a pastor uh, 14 months ago and stood before his church 14 months ago uh, and said, I don't believe any of this anymore of what I've been telling you over the last five years. Uh, so clearly there are cases where someone has reasoned themselves uh, to think something very differently, to believe differently. But I, I like how C.S. Lewis rightly said, do not most people simply drift away. Uh, and I'm asking to be honest with ourselves of how many of us here today have just, we didn't intend to, we've just slowly, slowly just drifted further and further and further away from where we didn't want to be. It's kind of like you wake up one day and you're like, how did I get to this place? You wake up and you're like, how did, I, how did I land here? Well, the answer is, well, you've been drifting. You've been drifting for a while. And this is not like a 21st century problem because things are really busy and you've got lots of distractions and, and work and school and studies and marriage and relationships and the internet and all of these distractions uh, that we could say, hey, this is a 21st century problem that we have to deal with, this idea of slowly drifting away because of all of the distractions. This was a first century problem, so much so that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it warns us not to drift away. Jesus, when he's writing some letters uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, he says this to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned uh, the love that you had at first. He's looking at the church and he says, hey, I see that you've got some things happening, going on, but, but I know. I know you've drifted. I know you have moved from where you once were and had a love. Your first love was me, but yet you slowly drifted away. And he calls them to come back in the, a letter that he wrote in Revelation 3 to the church in Sardis. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's really hard. To know that you can have the appearance, the reputation of, I look like I'm alive. Why? Well, because everyone around me would say, you seem like you're doing everything that you're supposed to do, but Jesus yet looks and says, but you've totally drifted. You have appearance of being alive, a reputation of being alive, but I, I know where you are. And he says, you're actually, you've drifted to this place where you're just spiritually gone, spiritually dead. Paul says to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy, cling to your faith uh, in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their conscience, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Paul is telling Timothy, hang on, like hang on to it. Because Paul is saying there are people, there are people, Timothy, that have drifted and drifted, and they've ultimately shipwrecked their faith. They've ultimately shipwrecked their lives. Uh, When I look back to some of the most um, influential men in my life uh, in my college years, so this is 20 some odd years ago, um, there was a couple guys that uh, I would have told you never in a million years would these guys drift. Never. Never. 
their passion, their love, their joy, their conviction. Never in a million years would these guys ever drift. But yet, 20 years has gone by, and the people I swore that would never, ever drift away are the guys that have just drifted. Their stories are very different. Their circumstances are different. But at the end of the day, they've just drifted further and further away. So the question is, how do you know that you won't drift away from faith, from love, from truth uh, in Jesus Christ as you get older? Um, it's a strong warning in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And make this personal for me. Uh, I take it really, really seriously. Uh, because I have drifted away. There have been times in my walk with God where I woke up and I, how did I get to this place called indifference? How did I get to this place just called indifference and I've got no compassion, no mercy, no kindness, no, how did I get to this place where I've somehow become just very familiar and comfortable with just existing? How did I get to this place where I'm okay with just going through the motions? So, when I read Hebrews 2.1, it hits me hard because I know that because I haven't clung on to the truth always, I have drifted to places that I swore I would never go. And this is the challenge, but it's also an incredible encouragement that even if you're here today in a place where you're like, I didn't even know it, but I'm realizing as you're talking, I've drifted so far away from where I, I never wanted to be. Uh, and so I'm thankful you're here today. I'm excited to walk through Hebrews 2 because Hebrews 2 is going to give us not a list of if you do this, if you do this, and you do that, then you're guaranteed never to drift away because that would just be called religion. Uh, and Hebrews 2 doesn't give us a religious answer uh, for how not to drift away. And if we're honest, that's what we generally want. Michael, I've got a pen. I've got my journal. Give me the top three things I need to know so that I do not drift away. Uh, well, we're going to walk through Hebrews 2, and it's not so much what we do as, as much as it is as to where we look. Um, and this is Hebrews chapter 2. I want to read just uh, the first few verses. And just so you know, I'd encourage you, please go through uh, Hebrews 2 today, this week, because there are so many things in Hebrews chapter 2 that I could not possibly cover in the next 20 minutes. And so I just want to encourage you. I can't cover everything. I'm giving you the highlight reel of a warning and how we can live our lives not drifting uh, because of where we're looking. But let's uh, start with Hebrews chapter 2, verse uh, 1 through 4. So we must listen very carefully. Listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law, uh, the reference here to the message delivered through angels uh, is, it was held Jewish tradition, Paul even confirmed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, that it was the angels who brought the, the law to Moses. So that's what that's a reference to. Verse 3, so what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by uh, those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. And so again, verse 1 just says, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully to the truth we have heard. Well, what's the truth? Well, the truth is, they walk through, hey, Jesus proclaimed a message, a message of salvation, a message that was no longer, uh, we are saved by the things that we do. Salvation is coming through the things that Jesus has done. 
This is an eyewitnesses giving account to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And God, in verse 4, uh, the author simply says, God has affirmed all of these things through incredible miracles, incredible signs that this is the truth that we are now to live our lives by. Now, I want to ask, a, I think, a challenging question. If the one message that you heard for your entire life just one message, it doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 80 years old, somewhere in between. If the one thing that you heard is the way, the only way that you connect, relate, understand, re- have a relationship with God is through following the rules and the regulations of what's known as the law. And that's the thing. You've lived your life by that. You've always fallen short by rules and regulations, but the one thing that you were told is this is how you can relate. But yet now, you're being told something new, something different, of, hey, you do not relate with God through following rules and regulations and the law. The way we relate, connect with God, can know God, is through looking at the one who has fulfilled all of those things for us. How hard would it be for you to switch gears? If you've lived your whole life saying, I've got to earn it, I've got to work towards it. I've got to follow all of these different laws. But now the truth of the message, the gospel that you've got to cling on to, you've got to hold on to so you don't drift away is something so radically different for you. How hard would it be for you to switch gears from, I'm no longer working for it. I'm placing my faith in the one who accomplished all of it for me. I think if we're honest, most of us would say, Gosh, that is really a hard transition to make because what we like to do is feel like I've somehow earned it, that there's something that I have done to get in God's good standing, God's good graces, as it were. We're more attracted to following rules and regulations than we are to say, I'm just looking to the one who actually fulfilled that for me. Um, uh, Tully and Chavinjan in his book, One Way Love, said it well. Uh, And he's answering the question of why are we so prone towards law? Why are we a people that are so prone towards the rules, the regulations? And he says this, conditionality lets us feel safe because it breeds uh, a sense of manageability. The equation, if I do this, then you are obligated to do that, keeps life formulaic and predictable. And more important, it keeps the earning power in our camp. Why do we love the law? Well, because we feel like if I do this, God owes me that. And we like that. Why? Because I can manage that. I I can, but the message that is being preached in the entire Bible and specifically here in, in Hebrews is this is the truth. The way that you and I know God, walk with God, relate with God uh, is not through what we do. It is through what Christ has absolutely done. This is the truth that we are to listen to, uh, and this is the truth we are to live by. So if we do not have right understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we're going to find ourselves drifting backwards to what is most known, what's most familiar, and honestly, what's most comfortable. And so this is the truth that this community is being challenged with. Cling on to the truth. And again, if you have to, as best you can, put yourself in the the frame of mind of, if you're hearing this, that's not what I've been told my whole life. And so in many ways, they needed to unlearn so they could 
learn rightly, but Jesus did all of that for you so you don't have to. So there is a tremendous transition taking place, uh, and that's obviously very difficult. But the message is a warning. If you don't cling on to this truth, you'll begin to drift. Um, Now, here are the things that I want to share with you uh, that we need to know and understand and see in Jesus. Again, verse 1 through 4 is about, hey, this is what God has done. This is what Jesus has done. If we don't cling on to this, we begin to drift. And I want to share with you just very briefly uh, three things I learned in Hebrews chapter 2 about who Jesus is. And again, this is not a list of do this, do this, and you won't drift. This is a list of, but this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And as we see him rightly, uh, our lives will not reflect ones who are drifting. First thing I tell you is this. Jesus is our perfect Savior. Jesus is our perfect Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 says this. Uh, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, verse uh, 9, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. Now, I know that there's a lot of things in those two verses, but the thing that I want you to see is Jesus is our perfect uh, Savior. So when we see Jesus, what we see is a perfect picture of the grace of God. When we see Jesus, he is our perfect Savior. He is a picture of God's grace. Now, why do I say that Jesus is a, a picture of God's grace? Perfect Savior, picture of God's grace. Uh, Jesus, who was with God, left the throne room, descended, became lower than that of angels, walked among us, endured suffering and pain and separation. Why? So that you and I would never have to encounter and experience that suffering, that separation from God for eternity. And where is Jesus now? He's seated right hand of God, crowned with glory. So this to me is an incredible picture of God's grace. The one who was with God left the throne room to come to where we are, to do what we could not do, to bring us to where we could never go. And why did he do all of that? Well, did he look at humanity and he was like, man, they're just such an amazing crew of people. Uh, I'm going to do this for them. And it says in verse 9, Yes, by the grace of God, these things happen. Now, I'm going to guess that this is not the first time you're hearing somebody say, Jesus is our perfect Savior. Now, let me ask, have you ever heard the phrase, familiarity uh, breeds contempt? Okay, I'm guessing we've all heard that. You've you've heard something so so much that it's kind of lost its, its punch. You've seen something so much that it's just not all that impressive anymore. I remember in college when I went to the very first football game, I'd never been to a stadium that seated 110,000 people. It was beautiful. It was awesome. It was awe-inspiring. I was amazed. But by about the fourth or fifth game, I was like, eh, you know, I've been here, seen it. It's pretty cool. You know, it's still awesome. But familiarity has a way of breeding contempt. 
And I just wonder if for some of us, we hear Jesus is our perfect Savior, and our response to that is, yeah, I've heard that. I know that. And as I've been sitting with Jesus introduced to us in Hebrews chapter 2 as our perfect Savior, um, I wrote it down in my journal like this. When we begin to lose the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done, it's at that moment we will begin to wander. And I don't know if you hear that, that Jesus is your perfect Savior. He is our perfect Savior. You're like, tell me something new. It's in that moment where we lose the wonder of our Savior and what he's done, who he is, what he's accomplished, that when we have that attitude, that mentality of, oh, I know that, I've heard that, it's in those moments that we will actually begin to wander away. Uh, King David, uh, if you're familiar with his story, he had an incredible sense of wonder and awe of who God is and saw God do amazing things. But if you know King David's story, he began to slowly drift further and further and further and further away, commits adultery, commits murder, tries to cover the whole thing up. And when David is, is finally broken uh, by God over all that he has done, do you know what David prayed? In uh, Psalm 51, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, this isn't my salvation. This is your salvation that you've given to me, and I've lost the joy in that. And the moment I lose the joy in knowing that Jesus is my perfect Savior who has come for me to bring me and do for me what I could never do, it is in that moment where I will begin to wander. It is in those moments where I will begin to drift further and further and further away. So here's a question. When you consider what Christ has done for you, leaving the throne room of heaven, becoming lower than that of angels, tasting death to secure our salvation, does that bring tears of gratitude? And I get some of you are going to be like, Michael, we're not criers like you. We don't cry over this. But when you hear what Jesus has done, is there anything in you that stirs emotion that says, I'm so filled with gratitude that he did that for me? I cannot believe that he would leave the throne room. I cannot believe that he would descend as he has. I cannot believe that he would suffer for me. Is there anything in you that says, I'm filled with incredible gratitude towards what my Savior has done? Is there anything when you hear Jesus is your perfect Savior, our perfect Savior, that causes you to shout for joy and sing, never heard, praise? Is there anything in you that says, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard? Forget football games, forget making money, for, this is the single most amazing thing I've ever heard. Jesus, who was in heaven, left heaven, descended lower than angels, tasted suffering. Why? So I wouldn't have to. That is absolutely amazing. And it leads to just incredible gratitude, which just leads to incredible joy. Now, does that happen? And I think if we're honest, a lot of us are going to have to say, gosh, I haven't felt that gratitude. I haven't felt that sense of joy in a really long time. And I wonder why, and I think the why might simply just be, well, we've forgotten grace. We've forgotten that all of that happened uh, because it was just the grace of God. I think it's easy to start believing that, well, of course he would do that. Of course he would come for me. Why wouldn't he? He's God, and look at me. I'm, I'm 
I'm not God, but why wouldn't he want to save me? It's all by grace. And when we forget grace and we lose that wonder, uh, we will begin to wander further and drift further and further and further away. That's the first thing uh, Hebrews 2 would help us to say, you need to see this, that Jesus is our perfect Savior. The second one is this, Jesus is our perfect brother. And I know for some, this is going to be like, that's a weird concept. Jesus is our perfect brother, but it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. I think often one of either ignored or neglected or just misunderstood is this idea that Jesus is our brother, that Jesus says, you and I have the same father. And because of that, that makes me your brother. And one of the things that just, just hit me hard this week is Jesus as our perfect brother. You know what he looks towards you and says? I'm not ashamed to call you family. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister. But in the very beginning of verse 11, what does it say? Now Jesus and the ones he makes holy. Well, who knows you best? Okay, if you're married, I'm going to guess you'd say your spouse knows you best. But just to uh, remind you, your spouse really doesn't know you all that well. They know what you allow them to know. And hopefully they know a lot, but we, people don't really know what happens in here. And what happens in here? Because if they did, we'd be scared to death that they would just bail and they would run away. So when I ask the question, who knows you best? You might say your spouse knows you really well, a friend knows you really well, a neighbor, coworker, a family member knows you really well. But I want to tell you, no one knows you better than Jesus. No one knows you like Jesus. No one knows all the stuff that's going on in your head right now. No one knows like Jesus knows all of just the impure stuff that can happen in our head and our heart, all of the lustful stuff that can happen, all the greedy stuff that can happen, all just the dark stuff that we think. Jesus knows all of that. He is the one who is sanctifying, purifying, cleansing us of these things. But with the knowledge that Jesus has about who you are, do you know what he says? It gives me joy. I am not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. And that, to me, is such a mind-blowing, heart-encouraging truth that Jesus says, we have the same Father. And because of that, I am proud to call you brother, proud to call you sister. So if we would not drift away from the truth, then understanding how Jesus views you is going to be incredibly, incredibly crucial. Um, Again, Jesus' brother, that might be a new thought, a new idea, uh, but why can Jesus be our brother? Hebrews 2 goes on in verse 14, 15, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. Well, if you want to know why Jesus can be our brother, it's because he became one of us in every way. He became one of us. It goes on, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So what the author of Hebrews is wanting this community to know is, uh, and again, first century, they're being persecuted to the point of death. There is fear of death. There is an incredible attack, spiritual attack. There's incredible darkness. There's 
tons of evil. And he wants them to know, hey, because Jesus became one of us, we share the same father, and Jesus is your perfect brother. And what you're walking through, experiencing what you're going through, the author wants us to know, but he is your perfect brother, not ashamed of you, but actually to stand with you, to stand for you, to carry you. So Jesus is our perfect brother. Now, I realize that a lot more could be said about Jesus as perfect brother, but the one thing I don't want us to miss is the implication this truth should have on our family here, our church here, every single person this truth that Jesus is our perfect brother. The way Jesus, as our brother, has treated, cared for, and unashamedly associated with us, do you know what? That is the exact same way that we are to treat one another. That is the exact same way that we are to care for one another. That is the exact same way we are to have concern, compassion, generosity, kindness for. Our brother, Jesus as our perfect brother, has shown us what family looks like. And what really breaks my heart is when I meet people who come to this church for maybe the first time, and I'm getting to know them, and I'm learning their story, and they are just so beat up. They're so jaded. They're so bitter. They're so hurt. They're so exhausted. Why? Well, because the family of God just kicked the tar out of them. Why we've lost that? Why should that ever, and I mean in any church, Well, I think we've lost sight of many things, but one, Jesus is our perfect brother, has showed us what the family of God is supposed to look like, has showed us what, how we are to care for one another, and how we are to have no shame in saying, that's my brother, and not fill it in with like, he's my goofy brother, he's like the weird uncle in the family that everyone makes fun of when no one's, no, that unashamedly, I am proud to call you my brother, I am proud to call you my sister. But yet in the church, we've somehow lost that. And when I say lost that, we've drifted. We've drifted further and further and further away from what Jesus as our brother is modeled for us. My heart for anyone who comes uh, to Genesis is uh, I realize there might be people who are only here for six months and then God moves them somewhere else or they just go somewhere else. Or they might be here for two or three years and they get relocated. My heart for every single person that comes to Genesis is that their time, their experience, not at this event, but within this community, is that they would go somewhere else and someone would ask them, hey, where have you been? Man, I had a phenomenal experience with the people of God. I'm not tired. I'm not beat up. I'm not angry. I'm not jaded. I don't need to rest and to heal. What can I do to help pour health into this family? That is so my heart for each of us, But that doesn't happen if we don't treat one another as family and we have the model that Jesus is our perfect brother. If we lose sight of that, we drift. The third thing, and we'll finish with this, would be uh, Jesus is our perfect priest. We started with Jesus is our perfect savior, he is our perfect brother, and he is our perfect priest. And I understand that priest, unless maybe you're coming from a Jewish or Catholic context, this whole idea of priest just is foreign. So the question is, what is a priest? And the answer is someone you go to for help. I don't want to dumb it down or oversimplify it, but the best simple answer I could give you is, what is a priest? Someone you can go to 
for help. And so it says in verse 17 and 18, therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. See, Jesus is not like just this distant force, this distant being that we don't really know much about. He came, flesh and blood. He walked among us. He lived among us so that we would know him as our perfect priest, the one, the only one who can actually help us. So if we would not drift from Jesus, then understanding how he was able to help us is going to be really, really crucial. Uh, think back to just even the past few weeks. When you got stuck, uh, when you were in a situation and you just you needed help, uh, who got the first phone call? Uh, maybe it was your spouse, maybe it was a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Who got the first phone call saying, hey, I really, can you help me with this? And I'm not like asking who, who can help you change a tire, but I'm talking about more of an emotional, a relational, a spiritual, who did you ask for for help? I feel like a lot of us uh, would say, well, I know the correct answer is Jesus, but I can't really relate. Jesus doesn't get what I'm going through. He doesn't understand. I can't can't relate with him. So I'm going to call my friend who's already gone through what I've gone through, and maybe they'll help me walk through this very well. But what Hebrews would say, if we don't get and understand that Jesus is our perfect priest and we're going to other people in our time of need and our hour of help, you know where you're actually going? further and further and further away. You're drifting further and further. So question is, how can Jesus help us in our suffering, testing, temptation? And this might sound incredibly too bold for you, but there's nothing that you will go through that he hasn't gone through. There is no feeling, there is no emotion, there is no pain, there is no hurt, there's no disappointment that Jesus has not endured that you will endure and say, well, he doesn't, he can't connect with me on this. He knows what the lure of temptation is like firsthand, 40 days. That's not the only time, but 40 days by Satan himself, again and again and again, hammering him night and day. While he was fasting, Jesus knows what the lure of temptation is like firsthand. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry. He knows what it's like to weep over the loss of a good friend. He knows what it's like to experience betrayal and rejection by a dysfunctional family and be stabbed in the back by friends, close friends, ministry friends. He knows exactly what that is like to feel the hurt and the disappointment of someone that you poured into only to stab you in the back, betray you, deny you, and walk away from you. He knows what it's like to love only to have that person walk away. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood and completely misrepresented. He knows what it is like to be single long after the rest of his friends actually got married. And I'm not being flippant when I say that. For a Jewish man, you'd get married at some point in your 20s and start having kids. Jesus knew exactly what it was like to be single in that cult, in that context, long after every single person had been, had been married. He knew disappointment in ministry. He knew the grief of having a child reject him and walk out on him in the story. If you're like, well, I didn't know Jesus had a kid. You remember when he stole this, told the story of the prodigal son? He was the dad. He knows what it's like to have an older son hate you 
use you. He knows what it's like to have a younger son walk out and just wish you for dead. He knows what it was like to be rejected by a marriage partner. I didn't know Jesus got married. Well, he didn't get married. He was single. But he knows that he was the bridegroom who came for the church and rejected him, mocked him. There is nothing that you and I will ever go through or endure that he, as our perfect priest, has not gone through. And so in verse 18, when it just simply says, um, since he himself has gone through suffering, testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. That to me, every moment I start going away from Jesus to look for help is I'm drifting further and further and further away. But Jesus, because he's our perfect priest, can identify and can walk with us and work through with us all of these things. The question we started with, how do you know that you won't drift away from faith in Christ as you get older? It's not going to be found in just a bunch of things that you do or don't do. It's going to be found, honestly, in where you're looking. The moment your eyes get off Christ as perfect savior, perfect brother, perfect priest, you're going to start drifting. The moment you look elsewhere, you're going to start drifting. And if you're here this morning and you realize, man, I've been drifting for a really, really long time and I didn't even know it, I just I want to invite you to get your eyes back on our Savior, our perfect Savior, perfect brother, perfect priest. Because only when we're looking at Christ and Christ alone, that's when we won't drift. It's not about rules and things that we can do to avoid drifting. It's, it's all in where we're looking. And the invitation in Hebrews 2 that I see is the danger of drifting. It can happen to anyone. And I can tell you from personal experience, uh, it's really hard when you wake up one morning and you realize, how did I get here? I didn't try to get here, but how did I get here? Well, Michael, you took your eyes off Christ. And the moment you take your eyes off of him, you'll drift. And so if you're here this morning and you realize you've been drifting, that's my invitation. That's my encouragement. Please fix your eyes back on Christ, Savior, brother, and priest.